Today we are continuing our sermon series, It's Still the Church. And we are looking at Jesus' seven messages to the seven churches recorded there in the book of Revelation. Let me just say this. I say it every week, but looking at these messages, looking at, at, at the, the things that, that Christ is, is telling us here, uh, I am excited about these messages. I am excited about uh, these sermons. I believe it holds great promise and really great potential for us as a church. And I think as we're going through this that we, we need to see with those eyes. We need to have that understanding. These messages hold great potential for us as a church. Folks, hopefully it is no secret that I want Calvary Baptist Church to be a soul-winning, gospel-preaching, Bible-upholding, Christ-exalting church. In fact, I'm so crazy that I, I, I hope and I pray that it is the greatest church, the most influential church, the most impactful church that God has ever assembled. I truly do, and, and I'm praying that God uses this and we find great potential and that we see that potential lived out in the life of our church. Let me tell you, I, I pray that eternity is different, that Jesus Christ is known because of the faithfulness of Calvary Baptist Church. Let me say this. There's no reason for it not to be. There's no reason for his name not to be known through the saints of Calvary Baptist Church. There's no, there's no reason that the gospel shouldn't pour out of, the, of, of Calvary Baptist Church. There's no reason that it should not be. My, my prayer is that in the instruction of Jesus Christ himself, that's what we have here, in the instruction of Jesus Christ himself, in his teaching to his church, that we as a church would be shaped, that we would be built as a church, that we would be encouraged as a church, and we would truly stand as that type of church. Listen, it holds that potential. It holds that promise. The word of God, the words of Christ, may we take it in and be shaped to be that kind of church. So far we have seen that it's going to require, first off, a love for Jesus Christ. And we saw that in the first message that he had, a, a, a true love for Jesus Christ, a, a deep, real Love for Jesus Christ, a love that, that drives everything about us, a love that propels everything about us, really a love that shapes us in everything that we do. Here's, here's the question. Are you shaped by your love for Jesus Christ or the things that you're doing, the, the priorities that you're holding today, are they shaped by an intense love for Jesus Christ or is it something else? Remember the call of that week was this. If that's not where you find yourself, it's as simple as repent and return. And so if you're like that church and you've left your first love, it's as simple as repent and return. And so the first thing we're going to need to be the type of church that he's called us to be is a real love for Jesus Christ. The second thing, and we saw this last week, we saw that it's going to take a settled commitment, a deep resolve. It is going to be hard, yes. It is going to cost, yes. But in the face of that, we have to realize that in Jesus Christ, we have all that we need, and so we commit to stay the course. We commit to finishing the course. Well, this week we move along, and we see on top of those two things, this week we see 
that we have to be, that we have to be, that we must be a people of the truth. Listen, as the church is talking about the, the truth of the gospel, but we have to be a people of the truth. We, we have to have a love for Jesus Christ. It has to shape everything about us. We have to be committed to the cause of Jesus Christ, understanding that it's gonna cause, cost us, but listen, we have to be a people of the truth of Jesus Christ. Today, our message is entitled, It's Still the truth. It's still the truth. Today we're in Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. I'm going to ask if you would, if you would stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 2 beginning here in the 12th verse. Jesus is speaking. He says this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp Two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come today, we're thankful for you. I'm thankful for my Savior, Jesus. Thankful for the forgiveness of my sins. Thankful for a hope that endures, a hope that outlasts the grave. Thankful for a settled peace. And our Lord, I come now and I'm thankful for the word of God. And I'm thankful that in the hard times and the good times that you are continually shaping us, teaching us we can depend upon the word of God. I, I pray today that you would speak through your word. And I pray that this next, this next few minutes would be a supernatural event when the, the word of God would come alive inside of our minds and our hearts and we would be shaped to, today. We would be changed today. I pray for some in this room that do not know Jesus Christ. I pray that today in the fellowship of the church, the preaching of the gospel, the drawing of your spirit, I pray that today they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for salvation to ring out in this hour. Lord, I pray for your church. I pray that you would lead it. I pray that we would be wise and submit to your leadership, that we would follow in obedience. And I pray for Calvary Baptist Church that the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out. I pray for, for many folks to be saved, for many lives to be changed, for disciples to be grown and sent out, and all of it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray now that you would speak, that you would lead. We dedicate this, we give it to you as an act of worship. We love you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our study today, the question is this. 
What makes a church the church? Now, I want us to think about that this morning. What, what is it that makes a church the true church? I think that's an interesting thing for us to think about today, especially in the culture that we're living is living in. What makes the church a church? And let me just tell you, this is a huge deal. This is a big thing for us to understand. Now, if you remember the last couple of weeks, we have said the church is not normal. And we need, to, we need to understand that. We need to grasp that. The church is not normal. The church is not like a club. The church is not like an association. The church is not like a business. The church is not normal. In fact, we, we find that the church is a supernatural thing created by God, given in the grace of God for the, for the mission of God. The church is a supernatural thing. Well, the question is this. What is it that makes a church the church? Is it the people? Is that what makes it the church? Is it the, the programs that they do, the things that they do, the, the things that we endeavor to do? You say, well, look at those things. Those are things that a church would do. Is that, are the programs, those are the things that make us a church? Is it its purpose? That they exist to do certain things. And we'll say, well, look at the purpose behind the things they're doing. Is it, is it the, the purpose that we have that makes us the church? Is it an organizational structure? Is it the fact that they have a pastor and they have deacons and, and so on and other, other entities do not have these things and so the, the organizational structure makes it a church? Is that what makes it a church? What makes a church the church? Hear this today, it is the truth. It is the truth that makes the church the church. It is the truth that sets the church apart. It is the truth that makes it different. It is the church, it is the truth that moves it along. It is the truth that is the, the foundation. It is the truth that becomes the mission. It is the, the, the truth that is the power. The power of the church is the truth. It is the truth that makes the church the church. Remember Matthew chapter 16? They are recorded as the account, and, and Jesus is walking with the disciples, and he asks them, who, who, who do, the, who do the, the people, who does the world say that I am? And they say, well, they say that you're Elisha, or they say you're a great prophet, or, or some of them say that you're a great teacher. Remember the account, he's, he's walking with the disciples, and he asks Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon this rock, upon this truth, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Folks, what makes the church the church is the truth of Jesus Christ. What makes us different from everything else is we hold the truth of Jesus Christ. Today in our verses, we're going to see our involvement with, we're going to see our call to this truth. Now again today for our study, for study's sake, I've broken our verses today into four parts. Four parts just to, to really move through the verses. They are this, the danger for the church, the duty of the church, 
the decision for the church, and the deliverance of the church. Those four things, again, just for us to study and move through our verses. The danger for the church, the duty of the church, the decision for the church, and the deliverance of the church. And we're going to see those things in our verses today. Let's, let's look at our verses beginning here in chapter 2. Verse 12 starts off, and it says, And to the angel. Now remember, this is the symbolic reference to the pastor of the local church. The, the seven stars that he holds in his hand are the seven angels. The angels are the pastors of the local church. And so he directs this to the pastor of the local church, to the pastor, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now let's take a look at this city, Pergamum. Pergamon was a city which is in now modern-day Turkey. It was a city about 100 miles north of Ephesus. The church probably started there out of the missionary influence, out of the gospel influence of some of the folks that were being saved in the church in Ephesus. So churches are starting. The gospel is going out. And part of the, part of the movement out of Ephesus becomes this church at Pergamon. Now, this city was a strange City, And I was thinking about that this week. It is, it is, a, it is an odd city. You see, there was not a port in the city. Uh, the, the other cities we'll look at have a port there. It was not a trade city. Really, it was not a, a city where great trade went on in the city. Yet, it was considered one of, if not the greatest city in this region of Asia. Now, that's an interesting thing. There's not much trade that goes on there. There's no reason really to go there. There's not a port that would drive us there, but it is still one of the great cities in the region. For over 250 years, it was the capital city of the region. Now, get this. Understand this. The main thing that the city was known for was pagan worship. That's what built the city. That was the hub of the city. That was the draw of the city was all of this pagan worship. In this city, there were temples for a whole host of Greek gods, Apollos, Athenos. The largest temple there was to Zeus. He was called Zeus the Savior. His temple was so big that you could see it as you approached the city. The city was built on a hill from the start of it to the top, it's about a thousand foot incline. And as you start to make your way to the city, you could see this temple for Zeus the Savior. It was shaped like a horseshoe. And so they said, they report that it looked like a giant chair perched on the mountain, or even a throne perched there on the mountain. Also in this city, there was a temple to the God of healing. I think it's very interesting how healing and the human need for healing enters in to worship. And there's a, there's a temple there to the God of healing. It, it was, this God was represented by the snake. Actually, the two snakes on the, the doctor's emblem today actually comes from this pagan God. In this temple, it was a, it was a large temple as well. In this temple, they had one room filled with non-poisonous snakes. And the people would make their way there and they would enter into pagan worship. And, and part of their goal was to make their way through this room and to touch one of those snakes and in doing so to receive healing. And so there's all sorts of false worship. There's all sorts of, of pagan worship. However, the biggest form of pagan worship 
was emperor worship. They worshiped and they built temples for the emperors who had reigned in that city. When it was the capital, they, they would build a temple and they would worship the emperor. And now that the, 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 the seat had moved to Rome, the, the Roman emperors, they would build them temples there and they, they actually called the Roman emperors God and Savior. They called these human leaders God and Savior. And so in the midst of all this pagan worship, the biggest form of pagan worship was of these men who were the leaders of the empire. And so we see here this city, it is a hotbed of pagan worship. And so be very sure of this. This was a city very opposed, highly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no trade going on there, not much. There's no really reason to visit, to visit there other than the pagan worship. This was a city that was in conflict with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the, and the verse says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, in this city, to that pastor, to be delivered to that church, it says this, right. And then again today, we see another description of Jesus. Last couple of weeks I've said this, how awesome it is to have and to see, and I want you to think about this, this is the word of God, to have and to see Christ's description of himself. And that's what we have here, not John's description of him, not somebody else's account of here. We have Jesus' actual description of himself. And what an, what an awesome thing to be able to travel through these, these messages and to see Jesus as he describes, really as he portrays himself. And I've, I've said it, if we do nothing else in this study but, but see these pictures of Jesus, we will have done a great thing. What an awesome thing that Jesus paints a portrait. He, he describes himself. He says this, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now this is vastly different than his other descriptions so far, but he says the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, it is very telling how the image of Christ, the portrait of Christ, is tied very closely to the message from Christ. And I think you'll notice that as we're moving through these messages, the portrait of Christ that he paints is tied very clearly and very closely to the message that he is about to give. And so Jesus says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now stay with me. Jesus, having submitted to becoming a man, having hum humbled himself to become found in the likeness of men, Jesus, having died on the cross of Calvary, now stay with me, Jesus, having died on the cross of Calvary, having paid the entirety of the cost of humankind's redemption. Listen, there's nothing else to pay. Jesus paid it all. And having paid the entirety of the cost of redemption, having endured the full wrath of God towards sin, not bottled up, the full wrath of God towards sin poured out on him having risen from the dead, having defeated death in the grave forever, having returned to glory as the reigning king, 
Jesus says, the one, the one, listen, he alone, no one else, the one, he who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. I want you to understand, this is not a soft picture of Jesus. This is not a dainty, warm picture of Jesus. He says, the one who stands, the one, the one who endured the cross, the one who now stands as the victor, the king, the one who stands. And in his mouth, the Bible says, he holds a double-edged sword. Listen, this is not a, an easy picture. This is not a, a soft picture of Jesus. This is Jesus standing as the judge. This is Jesus standing as the one who has the right and the authority to judge. This is Jesus, the one who will usher in and who will deliver his judgment. This is Jesus not only as the judge, but also as the executioner. Later in Revelation, it says that he will strike down the nations. This is Jesus standing as the judge. This is Jesus standing as the executioner. This is a stark, stark, powerful picture of Jesus. Here he stands as the judge, the very word of God. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, it says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, the truth is this, we might be able to fool an earthly judge. We might be able to convince an earthly judge. We might hire an attorney and we might somehow be able to deceive an earthly judge. But Jesus, the word of God, he knows the intents of our heart. He knows the thoughts of our heart and he stands here as the pure word of God. He stands as the righteous judge. He stands as the executioner himself who will bring the sentence. Do not miss the heaviness of that. Do not miss the seriousness of that. It's tied very closely to the message that he's about to deliver. Jesus stands as the resurrected king and he stands as the righteous judge, the one that'll execute it himself, the one that'll bring judgment, the word of God himself. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, Verse 13, we start to see the danger to the church. The danger to the church. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. See this. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. Jesus says, I see where you dwell. He says where Satan's throne is. At the end of the verse, he says where Satan dwells. He says, I see where you're dwelling there where Satan's throne is, where Satan himself is dwelling. Listen today. The church exists 
not in a vacuum somewhere. The church exists not in some sterile, safe setting somewhere. The church rests not somewhere in some high fortress. The church of Jesus Christ exists smack in the middle of Satan's domain, the domain where he prowls about seeking for someone to devour. We exist right in the middle of the domain of Satan himself. The light shines in the darkness. It means it exists in the midst of the darkness. That's where the church exists. That's the reality of the church. The church exists in the domain of Satan. Jesus says here, I know you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who is killed among you. We do not know who this guy was. Really, we're not sure. There's not a whole lot of detail given to us about this guy, but we do know this. He was faithful to the truth. He, he, was, he was given to the truth. It says, my witness. Jesus says, my witness, testifying to the truth. He didn't bend in the truth. He didn't compromise the truth. He stood in the truth. He was faithful to Jesus Christ. He was faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that, he was killed. Church tradition says that he was roasted inside of a bronze pagan statue of a bull. During the domain of, of Domitian, during the reign of Domitian, they took this pagan statue and they took this man, Antipas, and they stuffed him in it and they lit a fire under it and they burned him to death for his faithful witness of Jesus Christ. Church, 2018, be very sure today we exist in opposition to the world. We exist in conflict to the world. That's the truth of where we are. Listen, we exist in conflict to the world. Do not be fooled. Listen to me today. If your goal is to appease the world, if your goal is to get the acceptance of the world, if your goal is never to offend anybody in the world, you're going to have to quit being the true church. That's the truth. Today, it's acting like, well, tolerance is the greatest thing, not to offend anybody. That's the greatest thing. Listen, if your goal is never to offend the world, if your goal is to walk hand in hand with the world, if your goal is to get along with the world, you'll have to quit being the true church. I said it last week. Satan hates the truth. And so you better believe he hates a truth-bearing church. And listen, we exist, Jesus says, smack dab in the middle of the domain of Satan. And so the first thing we see this today is the danger for the church. The second thing we see is the duty of the church. The duty of the church. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Jesus says this, but I have a few things 
against you. Now, let me just tell you, that has to be a, a terrifying thing, especially for this day as Jesus stands as the righteous judge, as he stands as the purity of the word of God, with he stands as the executioner's blade in his mouth. And Jesus says, let me tell you, I have something against you. It literally translates, I have this down on you. What a terrifying thing for our Lord to say. I have this against you, he says. You might remember the account. Balaam was hired to curse Israel. He was a prophet for hire. We have a bunch of those around today as well. He's hired to curse Israel, but he, he goes, and remember the account, he tries and he decides he's going he's to curse Israel, but when he does, he, he pronounces a blessing to Israel. And he can't do anything but bless Israel. And he says, you can't curse what God has blessed. And what an awesome truth that is for us to, to see today. He says, you know what? I can't curse what God has blessed. And I'm not able to speak a curse on that which God has blessed. But then he leads Balak, the opposing leader, to introduce false thinking and by accepting the false thinking, the Israelites would curse themselves. That's, that's, that's pretty much how it happens. He says, you know what? I can't speak a curse against them. All I can do is bless them. But you know what? If you'll introduce false thinking, he did it with the women of the, of the, of the foreign people. He says, if you'll introduce false thinking, they will grab onto it and they will curse themselves. I want to tell you that's exactly what happens today. When we embrace false teaching, when we embrace false doctrine, we curse ourselves. So that's exactly what happens. They, they're, they're, they're cursing themselves as they reach in and grab this, this pagan culture and bring it there into their midst. Until in Numbers chapter 25, God decides he's have enough and he executes 24,000 of them. Many of them were the leaders. He purged it from their midst. Listen to verse 15. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now remember the Nicolaitans from a, a couple of weeks ago. They were a group that were bringing immorality in the church. Really, we would call this a hyper grace movement today, but they were, they were bringing sin into the church. They had distorted the teaching of the church. And they would say, you know what? It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter if you sin. God's going to forgive it. And they would talk about the grace of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. And they would say, you know what? God is going to overlook it. And it doesn't matter how we live as his people. God is going to forgive it. And they would say, you know what? God has truly said this, but his grace is going to excuse us from following it. And they'd entered into this false teaching, which is bringing immorality into the church. They brought this false, faulty gospel into the church and then the practice of the church began to change and that's always what happens. The, the teaching of the church begins to change and that's always what happens. See this this morning. Let me make it very plain. Jesus says to the church at Pergamon, I have some things against you, a few things. What he has against the church at Pergamum 
was that they were guilty of allowing false teachers and false teachings into their midst. And that's what they're guilty of. Well, that's not a big deal, isn't it? Well, isn't it close enough, good enough? Well, don't we have most of the gospel? Isn't that close enough? Jesus says, I have this against you. You've allowed false teachers and false teachings into your midst. Jesus says, you have some of these false teachings over there and you have some of these false teachings over there and I stand as the judge, I stand as the word of God and I'll tell you that you've allowed the gospel of Jesus Christ to be distorted. You've allowed the truth to be compromised and Jesus says this, it will not stand. Folks, hear me today. Be very clear in this today. The duty of the church is to uphold and to defend and to stand on the truth of the word of God. Period. Listen to me, hear me, be sure of that. Listen, be sure of me. What are we to do as a church? What's the duty of the church? The duty of the church is to uphold and to defend and to stand upon the truth of the word of God. And let me tell you, I don't care what you're doing and I don't care how it looks what's going on. I don't care what the world is applauding. If you're not upholding the full counsel of the word of God, you're failing as the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our duty is to uphold the word of God in the church. That's our duty. Well, I thought it was something else. No, it's to uphold the truth, the full counsel of the word of God. That is our duty. Today, the world comes along and says, well, close enough is good enough. No. The world comes along and says, we need to find what we have in common. Let's not get too stirred up about that other stuff. No, the truth is the truth. We stand on the truth. There is no compromise. Let me tell you something. This week, watch the news this week, listen to people this week. Our world has a lot of problems. Our homes have a lot of problems. Oh man, I, I see parents and I see wives and husbands and their, their hearts are broken and all this, this pressure and all these things and sin has entered in in our homes today. They're in the midst of all sorts of problems and, and you know what, we'll get through it. No, you won't. Our kids today have all sorts of problems. Oh my lands, the, the influences that are coming, all the things that are around them, they'll get through it. No, they won't. Our parents today, well, I'm going to educate, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to train them like this. You know what? We just have to go with the flow. The best thing is to be successful. We'll just get along. No, you won't. Our schools today, look at the schools today. We have trouble in the schools. What are we going to do to fix the schools? Our nation today, look at the mess of our nation, the government today. Our world has problems our nation has problems. Our town, Vernon, has problems as never before, as never before. And I want to tell you what the problem is today. The problem is we've set down the word of God as the perfect standard. 
Let me tell you something today. You want to know when things are going to change? Oh, I'd like to see a change. We talk about, oh, let's see a change. You want to know when you're going to see a change? You want to know when you're going to see a revival? You want to know when you're going to see God work? It's when we pick up the word of God and say, this is the standard. We're absolutely perishing for a lack of the truth. This is the truth. And our duty as the church is to uphold it. So the duty of the church is to uphold the truth. That leads us to the decision for the church. Verse 16. Therefore repent. Listen to the words of Christ. Therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 16 starts off and says, Therefore repent. Seems to be a heavy word as we move through this study. Repent. It means to change your mind. It means to change your direction. It literally means to change the inner man. It means to turn and to go back the direction you were once going to repent, to change, to repent, to go back. Therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Maybe the starkest warning in the whole series is this. Jesus says here, Repent. Quickly. That's what he says. Quickly, not wasting time. He says, repent quickly, not wasting time. There's not any minutes to spare. Repent quickly. He says, he will come if we won't repent and he will make war. Jesus with a sword in his mouth says, he will wage war. He says, listen church, the truth has to be proclaimed. The faults can't stand. And if you won't fix it, I will come and I will fix it. Notice this, it's a decision. It says repent or, it's a decision. Honor God or, follow the word of God or. You can go and appease the world, but Jesus says or, it's a decision. Repent or. Calvary Baptist Church, I'd like to see two services full here again. Let me, let me be honest with you. I said I was going to be honest all the way through this. I don't like one service. I've gained nine pounds since we went to one service. I'd like to see two services here. I'd like to see two services full. I'd like for us to be hauling chairs in so we can sit in the two services. I'd like them to sit in the foyer that they would hear the word of God in two services. I want to tell you, I'd like to baptize every single week. There is water still. It's still up there. I'd like to baptize every week. But let me tell you, whether that happens or that never happens, listen, we will not compromise the truth of the word of God, not as Calvary Baptist Church.
It's non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. Jesus says it is a decision. We have a decision to make as the church. We can appease and get in with the world or we can stand for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Last thing we see, it's an awesome thing, is the deliverance of the church. Verse 17, listen. He who has an ear, and listen, Jesus is speaking. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now what that means is this. It's a corporate call, but it's an individual decision. You see, I can't make up your mind, and I can't make up your mind. It's a corporate call, what he says to the church, but he who has an ear, let him hear. It's an individual response. You'll make a choice, and you'll make a choice, and you'll make a choice, and I'll make a choice. It's a corporate call, but it's an individual response. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Jesus says to him who overcomes, I will give him first some of the hidden manna. Remember in the, in the Ark of the Covenant, there was a jar in the Ark and it contained some of the original manna, the deliverance of God, God's provision. It contained a jar of the original manna and it was kept there in the ark. That manna was in the ark to point to the bread of life, Jesus. You know what your fathers lived by? This bread, we'll all live by the bread of life, Jesus. And so it was there to point to Jesus Christ, our Savior. He says, you'll receive Jesus. Then it says this, and I will give him a white stone. Now, there's a lot of speculation about that white stone. There's a lot of talk about what that white stone means. What is exactly does it mean? Uh, some folks say, well, it ties to the, to the high priest and the stones that they would use to, to sort of cast lots, and they would find the will of God through those stones. I don't think it's talking about that. I believe in context. I believe in the immediate context it is this. Listen very carefully. In a Roman competition they would give a white stone to the victor, to the winner. They've entered into the competition and they've run and they've run and they've, they've persevered and they've run and they've, they've had to, to, to push through it and they've run and they've finished the race and they've won the race and they, they stand there as the victor of the race and as they stand there and their heart is still pounding, as they stand there and they're still breathing hard, they have just come and they've made it to the end and they've finished the race and they've won the race. As they're standing there and the sweat falls off of them, they would hand them a white stone. And that white stone was a ticket to the award ceremony, which would be held later. And so when the race comes in, and maybe there's several different competitions going on, the way they would keep track of it is the race comes in, and as they finish the race, and as the victor crosses, as he stands and he's there, and he's panting and his heart is beating, they would hand him a white stone. You've won the race. And later they would have the award ceremony. And for that award ceremony, the others could only look in. 
The others could only wish that they'd run the race. Oh, I wish I'd have been faithful. Oh, I wish I'd have entered the race. Oh, I wish I'd have won the race. But they can only look in. They can only peep in. They can only stand in this crowd in the, in the stands and look down on the ceremony. But the one with the white stone, he could walk into the ceremony. And it's at that ceremony they would receive the victor's crown. Jesus says here, I see your struggle. I see your hardship. I see your hurt. I see your perseverance. Oh, Anipus, I see you. And to you I give a white stone. And when they watch and when they peep in, you'll walk in and you'll receive the victor's crown. Jesus says, I see, I know, and I will give you a white stone. It's kind of interesting. On the white stone, they would write the person's name. Several competitions going on, makes sense. They would want to identify who could come in. And so the white stone was the ticket but on the white stone, they would write the person's name. And so they come to the awards assembly, they would pass the white stone, but it would also have their name on it. Well, Jesus says, on this stone, I will give you a stone, but on this stone, there will be a new name. Now, what that means, I believe, is this. God knows who ran. God saw who ran. And he saw who testified. And he saw who didn't compromise. And he saw their hurt for the struggle. He saw their, their pain for the struggle. He saw that they were faithful in the effort. He saw that they were a faithful witness in Anipus. He may have been hated by the world. He may have died there in that bronze pagan statue. But he says, I will write on your stone a new name. What it means is this. He knows who are saved. He knows who belong to him. It's not in mass, but it's for the individual. It is personal. The God that is eternal, that is before all things, that is after all things, that is the creator of all. He says, I see you and I know you and on your stone, I'm going to give you a new name. It's really been his pattern. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Luke, Simon, the Lord called him Peter. Saul, the hater of the Christian Saul, he becomes Paul. I wonder what ours could be. A white stone. And on that stone, given by God, a new name. Let's pray.